0: another episode of the Content Lab. Let's just cut right to the chase, guys. This is the only podcast out there for content nerds, comma lovers, blog writers, digital marketers who VP of marketing is coming to them and say, hey, want to be a content nerd now? And you really don't have a choice. This podcast is for you. I am your host, Liz Moorhead, the editorial director at Impact. And as always, I'm joined by my favorite person, John Becker. How you doing?
1: I'm great, Liz. It is Earth Day today when we are recording, but it is like 35 degrees out here in Connecticut. It frosted last night, so normally when you think Earth Day, you think late April, you think daffodils and lilacs and all this sort of beautiful spring bloom. Not so much.
0: No. In fact, yesterday it was, what, raining and hailing sideways. Today it's like Maybe 40 degrees, although I'm still going to stand outside. There's a, there's a park by my place that I found last weekend that has a, it's like a lighthouse beach because there are two things New Englanders do really well. Act like buttheads, like with that New England air quote charm. And then they can rock a New England lighthouse like no other. Like lighthouse game in New England is super strong. But I'm definitely going to go stand out there on the beach, freeze my butt off later this afternoon and be like, I'm outdoors just so I can be outdoors for once.
1: We are also good at changing lanes without using our signals. So that's three things that we're good at, not just two.
0: Uh, Can I just say one thing? I got into uh, an actual – it bordered on an argument like – Hatfield and McCoy style of, like, schism with between me and a friend because he said directional instead of turn signal. And I'm sorry, what is that? That's I not think funny. it's a
1: Massachusetts thing. My wife says that sometimes. He's directional. from Florida. Okay, then I don't know. He that theory's out the window. Yeah, I say it's a turn signal or a blinker. A blinker. A blinker? Yeah. <laughs> well, That's anyway... Uh, Late spring notwithstanding, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, Usually we speak broadly about topics in content marketing, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to, rather than talk about a big topic, we're going to look at a single example start to finish, a sort of of case study. Uh, Impact puts out two or three, sometimes four articles per day. In addition, sometimes we do podcasts, we do other different types of content, uh, but we're putting out a lot of written content. So I thought it would be useful to look at one example and take it from idea to publication. And the example that we're going to use today is written by my co-host, Liz, and I thought that would be particularly useful because it's also something that was published today on our blog uh, and that was written and staged and published in a single day, which was yesterday. Correct. So I want to first talk a little bit about um, the category that this falls under, and then I'm just going to kind of pepper Liz with questions uh, from start to finish. Liz, are you okay with that?
0: I am hoping I don't emotionally buckle under the pressure, but I'm here. I got my water bottle next to me. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. This. So first
1: of all, Something we publish every workday, every Monday through Friday, is a news reaction. We do this usually at seven thirty in the morning, and what we do as a team is look through current news, current research, things related to marketing and tech and business, um, mostly, and sometimes maybe uh, things that are happening in government that might be related to those fields, product development, etc. And if we find that it Or we believe that it would be useful for our audience. We will um, present it to our audience, comment on it, say, you know, why does this matter, uh, etc. So the article that we're talking about today is a news reaction that Liz published, as we said, this morning. So Liz, before we get into anything, can you talk about what was your topic?
0: Absolutely. So Any digital marketer worth their salt knows that our great Google overlord likes to do a lot of experimentation with something called the SERP. Now the SERP is simply an acronym that stands for search engine result page. So like if I were to go to Google and type how to keep my cat from clawing my couch and hit enter, the page that comes up with all of the different results, that is a SERP. It is the search engine result page. Now, when I'm saying experimentation, what I refer to is the fact that how Google displays results has changed a lot, especially in the past, I would say, 12 to 24 months, um, in terms of how they place organic results, um, where do they put ads, but more specifically and more, I would say, dramatically in terms of its impact. They have been experimenting with adding boxes that display videos. There's something called a featured snippet, which is actually above the number one result. It's called position zero and it will have visuals and it will display what Google thinks may be the most interesting or relevant answer. There are knowledge panels, things like that, and on and on and on. They're constantly experimenting with new and visual ways to get the right answer in front of the searcher faster and often in ways that requires the searcher not to even click away from Google. They stay on the page. Now, what has happened in the wake of coronavirus is they have now rolled out a left-hand sidebar that I have never seen before. Um, So if you were to go to Google right now, you try typing something like, Just how about the word coronavirus, or how do I prevent coronavirus, or coronavirus symptoms? Anything like that, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see on the left-hand side almost a table of contents-esque sorting mechanism. So if I were to just type coronavirus, like, I don't know what I need to know about. There's so much news about coronavirus. I don't know if I want treatment, symptoms, news, prevention. Like, I don't know what I want. I just need to have stuff served up to me. It allows me to create a personalized, self-selected experience instead of Google being like, I don't know, I think this is what you want, and serving me like a one through 10, just stacked level of the usual organic results that we're used to seeing. So that was really what this was about. Um, It wasn't just about it within the context of coronavirus. It it is a tip of the hat of something that I hope Google is going to be experimenting more with, because it solves a couple of challenges that they've always struggled with, with personalization. And on the other side of that, the the bubble of filtering that we saw and felt very acutely during the 2016 election.
1: So was this something that you had read about or you just encountered on your own perusal of the web?
0: I encountered it, and I remember going, huh, that's interesting. But I didn't know how broad of a scale it was, and I remember a couple of times I didn't see it, so I didn't know if it was just a blip on the radar, and then it went away. And then one of the things that we do internally, just to pull back the curtain on our process a little bit, is we, as an editorial team, I created essentially this curated um, feedly account where it curates all of the different news articles that are relevant. And then John and I go through and we decide what is the most relevant? What is the most useful using the parameters that you laid out at the beginning of this conversation? You shared this and I'm like, okay, this wasn't just a blip. This really is something. And when I started looking at the initial article, which came from search engine journal, because usually we're either linking to what is called a primary source, meaning like, let's say we publish something about Facebook news. A primary source would be their release, their statement. Or especially when it comes to Google, they're tending, they tend to be very closed-lipped. So you usually get that from a secondary source, like a search engine journal or something like that. So in this case, it was a search engine journal and article. And I thought what the guy mentioned in terms of the problems it Is solves with... I love the robot in my home, and we're going to leave that in because <laughs> my dear little Skynet box just talked back to me and I think it's upset because I'm talking about Google. I know where I am, hold on. This article did a great job of really talking about the two problems that this SERP left side panel has the potential to solve for, but I did notice at least from my own experience, and we can get into more of this, that i felt like we could have gone a, i felt like there was more to the story there there's the binary narrative of how does this solve for the very explicit literal problem right in front of us of how does this create a better search experience for users what can marketers learn from it but i think there was just a broader discussion to be had about organization of content and sorting and how do you create that experience in other places
1: so i love that because there are there's a lot going on in your head when you encounter this topic as you said you find it yourself then you find an article about it and you think to yourself, okay, this is interesting. There's something here. And then you read it there, probably read elsewhere and think, okay, there's a conversation. It feels like only half of the conversation or a part of the conversation is being had. Let's push that in different, different directions. And I'm sure also in the back of your head is, okay, what does this mean for our audience, marketers who read our website? Um, and and it's it's also taking something that sounds like it's being tested right now, and applies it to potential future situations. So it's both, hey, here's what we're seeing, here's what it might mean for the future. And I love that kind of balance of questions that you can answer and questions that can't be answered yet, and, and sort of the the conjecture that is inherent in any reporting on something that's not finalized.
0: Correct. And the other thing I I want to piggyback off of that you just said is that this idea of, I think it's very easy, whether you're talking about the context of impact, right? Like we, we deal in digital sales and marketing news and things like that, but in any space I think there's this natural reaction and in 90% of the cases it makes sense to have an expert in a particular area provide, provide the insight and analysis in a topic in that same field. But what I found interesting about this particular topic in general, and I know I just used the word interesting and I hate the word interesting. What I, let me rephrase, what I found opportunistic about this that I didn't realize until I got to the end of this process was that because I was not an SEO specialist, I was able to have a completely different take on it. And it encouraged, I I would encourage people to think about things like that because sometimes, as John, you know, especially in your role as someone who interviews subject matter experts in areas of expertise that are not native to yourself, sometimes as the outsider looking in, you can provide completely different types of insights and analyses that might not otherwise would have ever come to the surface. Like the take that I had on this is that you know, let's look at a pillar page, for instance. Is there something I can learn in terms of the UX of a table of contents, Or are there other ways that we could imagine blog articles or sorting learning centers by the big five categories of problems, cost, you know, versus things like that? I started thinking about just the whole idea of how somebody interacts with a piece of content, so they can get to what they want to find faster and are less likely to abandon a piece of content. Now, if I were to put that in front of Franco Valentino, who's our partner at Narrative SEO, that's not the reaction he's going to have. So it it depends very much on the topic in front of you, but it's something I always encourage people to remember. Don't count yourself out as being someone who can craft a piece of content about a particular topic because that's not your native area, go talk to the expert and then have your own knee-jerk reaction and explore it.
1: It's interesting and when we write about, sorry to use the word interesting.
0: I know, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When we write about news, I find that we're often forced into that place of kind of double vision. Like if, if we're writing about something that's new to Facebook ads or something, We're inherently writing about it both as, from the user experience, we use Facebook, but also from the marketing experience. And I think that's actually really useful because we're continually reminding ourselves how important it is to think like our customers. And if Facebook is trying something new with ads that we're gonna find really annoying or intrusive, then this is just as an example. It's important to think about that as a user first, and then when we think about it as, as marketers, we can have that empathy that allows us to use any tool more wisely and less intrusively.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think it comes down to just, you know, if you're not that person who has that native expertise, it's really just not talking yourself out of the questions you have. I think sometimes when we sit down and we, we, we are like, okay, so I have to write this article about, I mean, I, I don't know. Let, let's say somebody's like Liz water, super soaker to your head, like write an article about paid ads. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to blindly feel my way along the wall until I find some words that resemble a light switch. And then when you get into that headspace, you just talk yourself out of, like, you're just trying to like, look like, you know what you talk, what you're talking about. But I think when we, we become so rigid mentally with that type of thought process, it completely inhibits us from asking questions and being the student. Like you don't have to be the expert to be the teacher. You just have to say, I'm going to be the student right alongside you, but I'm going to be documenting it so we can all learn together. Like that's really all you need to do.
1: Agreed. Okay. So let's come back to the topic that you wrote about. You have this topic, you have questions about it. You have things that you're supposing might, happen in the future other applications of it so and you know that this is going to matter to our audience and you also have a deadline from me technically so you have all the things you need to start so what's step one like how do you how did you in this article so i'm not talking generally i'm talking specifically how did you start
0: i started it from the perspective of I needed everyone very quickly to understand what I was looking at and why it was so surprising. So for me, especially with this type of article, but I think quite frankly, it applies to any type of blog that you're writing. You have to do a lot of table setting very quickly so that you not only have a shared understanding, but a shared language with your audience about what it is you're looking at, why you're looking at it, why you're looking at it right now, And essentially open the door. Oh my God, I'm mixing so many metaphors. Opening the door (laughs) so the bird can fly into the nest. Like uh, there we go, there we go. Just like mixing it all up. No, all kidding aside, that's really what I focused on first. So I wanted to explain. uh, I wanted to answer all those questions. What is it that we're talking about? Why are we talking about it? Who is it relevant to? And then give a lot of visuals. Show it to people. You know, put it in front of them. And then I added some personality because I didn't want people to get bored. So that's really where I started the conversation for me when I started mapping this out, because I knew if I go into this perspective, if I go into writing an article, whether it's news reaction or otherwise from the headspace of what do I need to show first in order to get us all on the same page, it makes it a lot easier for me to essentially then predict every question that the audience is going to have. And if I start going through it, like I'm imagining literally one person sitting across from me at a table. Like, that's the way I act. Like, I act like I have to teach this to the person before I explain the context. And as soon as that happens, I, I don't know how to describe it. I just have, like, a little mental dialogue where, like, if I get to a point where I'm, like, okay, I've answered this question, what's next? I'll hear that little person in my head, which maybe is a sign that I need to, like, go to therapy more or something. But, like, I hear it, like, this is the question you now need to answer. It's like, okay, so what does that mean? Yeah. Like, it's, just,
1: it's, it's consensus building.
0: Yeah. It, because it, like to take you through the narrative of this piece. So I explain, you know, why I added a little context around like the idea of going to Google and just like broadly searching for a topic and then what I found and how I got there and then why it was put in place. But then the next question is, okay, so wh- what is the context for this outside of coronavirus? Like, why is this a big deal? So that's when you start stepping back and having the larger narrative discussion. So once I lay that out a little bit, I talk more about like, okay, so these are the two problems it solves and there's a lot of potential here. Granted with Google, we don't know anything. Like we know nothing. Every time they say like, oh, this doesn't influence the algorithm or your ranking, I'm like, oh, I don't believe you. <laughs> like you're lying to me and I know you're lying to me. But you know, I, I walk through that idea of like, we may not know what the future is, but we can say definitively that this is a big deal because it solves a lot of challenges that they've had. And then to take it a step back further, then it's like, so wait, I need to understand why you're telling me this is a big deal. If we don't know if it's never, if it's ever going to happen, maybe it's just coronavirus specific. And then like a year from now, this type of functionality disappears. Then it's like, well, there are other things to think about, you know, even if this isn't the change that is going to happen, another change might happen. So you need to be prepared that you're constantly going to be confronted with different things as a marketer and as a consumer. But even beyond that, we should be looking at all of these changes, because Google is trying to solve for a lot of the same problems that us marketers are trying to solve for. How do you organize information appropriately so people can find the answers they need faster? Because Google and marketers like think about they ask you answer in Google. We both have the same job. People are coming to us with questions and we have to give them the answers. And we're all trying to figure out a way to do that quickly, either through the first via the search engine to even get them to our site. But once they're there, Like how do we keep them on our website? How do we keep them from abandoning something if they feel like they're not finding their answer? You know, that, so that's where that narrative structure really starts coming in. It's you table set and then you start predicting all the questions you're going to get afterward in order. And then you just know when you're done, once you're out of questions.
1: (laughs) I'm going to get you there in a second, but I want to back you up a little bit as you're talking about table setting and, and sort of anticipating questions What assumptions do you make about your audience and their knowledge base going into a piece?
0: I don't. I do not assume, I know broadly who our audience is, but I'd like to think that I do a good enough job that an entry-level marketer and a VP or C-level could all be sitting at the table and we're all staying together on the same page the whole spirit behind the ethos of what we do, especially since we've embraced this, they ask you answer philosophy, which is which is a philosophy that essentially guides the principles and is executed via methods like content marketing and things like that. This idea that really your buyers have questions, now go out and answer them. But the spirit behind that is to be the best teacher about what you do. And if we think about it from that teacher's mindset, Teachers shouldn't assume a level of knowledge. I mean, granted, if, like, it's, if you teach fifth grade, you would assume people have, are ready for fifth grade. But I want it to be accessible. I want people to feel like they're learning something and I don't want people to feel stupid. Which is why I spend a lot of time trying to humanize and make myself approach through my voice and tone. But then also making sure I do a good enough job of saying, this is the background of why we're here today. And then I show it.
1: I wrote down for today a quote from Anne Hanley from Everybody Writes, which is a great book that we've talked about on this, on this podcast mm-hmm. before. And she very, you know, very deferentially doesn't say that she made this up. She got this from some professor during uh, her journalism school days. But she said, assume the reader knows nothing, but don't assume the reader is stupid.
0: Exactly
1: which feels like so perfectly said and exactly what you're saying, that you want to be able to have that entry-level marketer and that C-level marketer be able to sit at the same table.
0: I also want people to feel like, even though it's not a literal dialogue where they're sitting in front of me, I always try to adopt a posture mentally where the voice and tone of what I say that comes out Invites people to feel like they can ask me a question, and I'm never gonna look at them and be like, "That's what you're asking me." Yeah. I, that's what I really encourage people to do. You know, you want to show that you're smart. Like I want people to think that I'm smart and passionate and like really stinking good at what I do. Like I want people to think that, but I don't want that to create a barrier between myself and somebody else. Because guess what? I only know all this stuff, and I'm really stinking good at what I do because I took a long time to learn it, and I had other people teach me. You know, and I I think knowledge should be something that is a bridge between people as opposed to something that is divide. And I think depending on how you position yourself and your content, you can very easily steer into the wrong path. I just love that quote from Ann Hanley because she's absolutely right. You can use your knowledge as a weapon or you can use your knowledge as a way to connect with people. And I think sometimes people try to I don't think they realize that they're doing it. I don't think it's ever malicious. It just is something that can happen if you're not paying attention.
1: When I was an English teacher, I used to always tell my students, you can't write a good paper without writing good sentences. You know, that, like that when we zoom in, we have to be able to scrutinize even the, the, the details that make up a piece and still see quality and still see attention to detail. Um, and I, I I highlighted one from your piece for today, and I just wanted to use that as a little bit of a, um, again, a bit of a case study within a case study. So this is these are your words. You say, for example, there's the position zero featured snippet placement, which is highly sought after by digital marketers because it often steals the traffic that used to get gobbled up by the number one search result. And I'm not gonna like make you, Read your poetry to the you know to the room or or anything like that. But I I just want to say why I love this sentence for a couple reasons. One is we are we're always talking about using good and active verbs, and I love that it steals the traffic that used to get gobbled up by the number one search results. There are so many more boring ways to say that, you know, because it often takes the traffic that used to go to the number one search result. That that says the exact same thing, but it has so much less personality. And I love in the beginning of this sentence, uh, the as you talk about the position zero, I mean, it's essentially you're doing the due diligence that you have to do vis-a-vis what we said before. You, you have to explain things to people. You have to assume that they know nothing, but you're doing it in such an efficient way and such a sort of conversational way that it feels both like you're I think exactly the balance that you were just saying that you are knowledgeable and approachable at the same time that you are explaining something that could be done in a couple paragraphs or could be linked to another article like it's just you're telling us as much as we need to know about this other aspect without letting it turn into a digression and then pulling us back into the central trajectory of the piece and along the way, you're dropping in these good verbs that give your piece action and personality. So what a dynamite sentence, Liz. Thank
0: you. When I saw you <laughs> had that as a highlighted quote, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, no. What have I done wrong? It. it, it- I appreciate you pointing that out because it's actually funny. And I don't know if you saw the existential breakdown I had in a Slack thread last night when I was trying to do the latest intro, because what I did really well in that sentence was exactly what I was doing wrong in that particular <laughs> issue. And, and it's, it's it, I'm bringing that up not to divert us away from the actual article, but to bring up a point because I essentially did it well in one place and did it poorly in another. And the, I think it, I, I share that because it looks like it's effortless on the surface. Like people will give me compliments like that. And thank you, John, coming from you, that means so much. Um, But people will give me compliments about my writing and say how conversational it is. And it sounds exactly like me, but it is, not always easy especially when it's exactly what you described like you're trying to get a point across that could very easily be expressed in a boilerplate fashion and that's when your brain kind of turns off you and and you have to mentally flip that switch and that's where it gets awkward it gets stilted that's where usually people fall down and they forget like pretend like Ann Hanley does this. And so do I imagine a specific person in front of you. Like, you know, your, their name, you know, exactly who they are and imagine it like you're saying it directly to them. So like, for example, Jess Palmieri, who is on our HubSpot squad, she is working on a piece of pillar content. And I gave her that assignment. Like you need to figure out who this is to, And she wrote it to her dad and it was night and day difference between the first drafts that she gave me and the second. Like the conversational tone came through and it completely changed the game. And what was interesting about the, there's that word again, what was somewhat marginally demoralizing and I just kind of wanted to throw myself into a pit last night um, was I was sharing a story about ironically writer's block essentially And I worked with someone on our team named Connor, because he was the poor, unfortunate soul who happened to be up that late while I was working on it. And he and I kept going back and forth and back and forth. And I'm like, I know this section is broken. I know this section is broken. I don't know how to fix it. And I was getting really frustrated. So imagine the sections I'm talking about are that good quote, but said in a very boring, stale, awful way. And when I finally just broke down and said, I need you to get on a Zoom call with me. I need to talk this through. He finally just said to me, you know, like this part doesn't sound like Liz, that's the problem. This sounds like something I would say. This doesn't sound like something you would ever say in real life. And that's the litmus test that you really need to put yourself through. You mentally flip that switch where it's like, okay, I'm just going to say all of the boilerplate boring jargon, or you can just sound like a human being. And, like, he called it out completely. Like, that was what I was feeling. That's why I wasn't liking what I was writing, because I was trying to sound the way I thought I was supposed to sound, because I was feeling insecure about the idea, instead of just saying what it is that I wanted to say. I hope that word salad made sense, because it was a very interesting experience, interesting. Mm, I need like a swear jar for that word. It was an illuminating experience because I had those two things happen so closely together, literally within hours of each other that happened.
1: Such is the life of a writer. I think
0: it was horrible and awful. And it was a learning experience.
1: So let me push you a little bit more into that because I think nowhere is our writing more obviously on display Than in a headline. And I I know that you and I, and everyone else on our team, and probably everyone around the world who's writing agonizes over word choice, punctuation choice. (laughs) We debate capitalization. Um, But when we're writing a headline, that has to be perfect. We have to get that right. And I want to sort of walk or have you walk us through the headline here because. The difference, we could have the same article and write different headlines, and the effect will be different. And we don't really get to A, B test things the same way with, uh, with a publication. So your headline is, is Google's new coronavirus SERP panel a preview of what's to come? And then in parentheses, I hope so. So talk to me about how you wrote that. Was that your title from the beginning? Did you write it at the end? Did you agonize over it, or was this just did it come easy?
0: As with anything I do, because I'm a drama queen, uh, I tend to agonize to some degree over everything I do. There is not a task of writing that occurs without it being some sort of small episode of Dynasty. Um, (laughs) But uh, hyperbole aside, (laughs) um, I, I didn't necessarily struggle with this one, but I did play with it a little bit. Um typically speaking there no matter what I write about I want that headline as you know because I harp on this constantly with everybody on my team I want it to be as explicit as possible. I found that a lot of times especially as marketers we will write headlines that are like what is the spirit of the philosophy of the blank or let's explore together the blah 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 or the myth of the blank. Like all of these very like we're a lost generation writer. We're drinking a little wine. We're getting, we're getting a little wax, waxing of the philosophic. What does it, it all just, mean? Yeah, it's, it's fluffy crap that our people don't care about. Because when people are searching for something, they're trying to solve a problem or they're trying to answer a question, no in-between. There is no person who is trying to buy something from you who is like, you know, let's pause for a moment. Let's slow this down let's get philosophical about the shoes that you're selling in your e-comm store or the, you know, or the government contracts that you want me to sign. Like those are not things that are happening. So I like headlines to be explicit, to be action oriented where somebody can say in their head, like, Ooh, that's me in the headline. Or I don't have to think it all to understand what this is about. The moment you make someone think is the moment you lose someone. You can be thought provoking. You can ask interesting questions that challenge the reader to explore themselves deeper, but don't do that in a headline. Your headline is not a fortune cookie. It is not Confucius. You are not a philosopher who's like trying to challenge somebody with the Socratic method of why. Like this is not where that business is done. The business of a headline is to explain to people very quickly and concisely exactly what it's about. That's it. Now, in terms of this specific headline and and how it came together, originally it was just the question for a little while. Uh, You know, is it a signal of what's to come? I decided to add a little personality on it because I hope so a parenthetical, my hope is the knee-jerk reaction would be like, why? Why does she hope so? Because Google makes a lot of changes. They change everything all the time. They've probably turned the sky orange since we started recording i have no idea they do a lot of things but i wanted it to be thought provoking especially since at a glance coronavirus dates it and i wanted to somehow communicate that the discussion i was having was larger than that because the the context in which this change occurred was precipitated and forced by coronavirus. There are too many things that people need to understand about something in a global pandemic situation. Again, symptoms, treatment, overview, news, all of those things in one place and it is probably the perfect example of a topic where somebody's going somewhere and saying, I don't know what I need to know other than everything all at once. Like I don't I don't know how to start prioritizing what I need. And it that's really where that came down to is that like I had a very small amount of real estate to communicate my opinion, to be explicit about what we were talking about and explain that there was a much larger discussion to be had beyond the immediate thing that we all see in front of us, which is COVID. Hopefully I executed that, but that's, that, was, that was the idea behind it. And I thought a parenthetical, I hope so, just to add a little bit more, I don't know, moxie, you know, <laughs> like there's a real human being behind it.
1: You're right, obviously, that, that there is such limited real estate there, 70 characters or so. Um, so I want to push you into something that I think is really overlooked, which is the meta description, also very limited real estate. But what are you trying to do there? What is that and, and what are you trying to do there in conjunction with, in opposition to, or in comparison to a headline?
0: The meta description for those who are unfamiliar with the term is essentially like, let's go back to the example I gave at the beginning of this. I have a monster little gremlin of a cat who sometimes likes to use my couch as a scratching post. So occasionally when I'm feeling really freaked out, I will just go to my computer and type in, how do I keep my deranged cat from scratching my couch? Now, then what happens is the SERP comes up. And again, that's the search engine result page. And you'll have a big list of all of the different results, right? You'll have the title that's linked, so that's what you click out to, and the meta description is the blurb. That gives you a little bit more context to what you're going to find on the page. Now, what populates there can be a little bit tricky depending on a couple of things. How explicit the search term is in terms of what you've actually presented on the page, how it's optimized, blah, 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 because sometimes Google will pull an excerpt in and put that in the place of the meta description. But more often than not, the meta description that you set in the back end of your CMS, so your content management system, like a WordPress, a HubSpot, a Wix, whatever you're using to run your blog, um, is the teaser. And that's how I think about it. Google has explicitly said a thousand times that meta descriptions do not influence ranking. Now, I always think about that a little bit with a grain of salt, but I mention that because... The purpose of the meta description is not to feed the robots, meaning not to woo the great Google machine into boosting up where your piece of content is supposed to go. What it's meant to do is entice the person who, once they lay their peepers on the screen and see your thing, your description is your chance to go, hey, no, me, you want to look at me. So depending on what it is, depending on the different article, sometimes it'll be a little bit more teasy. Like if it's something that's more thought leadershipy or something like that, it may be very, very short. It may be something as simple as, I I can't remember what the article was, but I think I was complaining about the word thought leader, like the term, like it just makes me angry. Like whenever somebody puts thought leader in their Twitter bio, I'm like, "Mm, that's like calling yourself an influencer. I don't like you. I want to know you. I don't care how smart you are. So I think I put something to the effect of, I really hate this term. And if you call yourself a thought leader, I don't like you either. Here's why. And I think it was something ridiculous like that. So you can get a little bit feisty. Other times I'll be more descriptive. So for example, if we're doing an article that's more geared toward, you know, what are the most common problems that content managers face? I might put in something like, I've been a content manager now for close to 10 years. Here are the exact problems I faced. And here are the step-by-step instructions on how to, how to overcome them or whatever. Get really explicit about the value that they're getting. You either really just want to make it irresistible. So they understand again, exactly what they're getting or you've, agitated them so much by being a brat that they have to click through. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like That's it, you're just trying to win those eyes. You're trying to make them not look at your competition. So anything that sounds human, anything that sounds explicit, I think tends to perform really well there. Because often you'll see that uh, people will treat the meta description as some sort of dumping ground for a random sentence that has marginally to do with what the topic is about. Like they have pulled in from the actual article itself, or it's just keyword stuff to oblivion. So like people are just gonna glaze over cause they're like, those are English words in, a, in an order I do not comprehend.
1: <laughs> yeah, that makes tons of sense.
0: Uh, so the last
1: thing that I wanna ask you, Liz, in our case study, is at least it's the last thing that I'm often doing when I am posting something is when we publish through HubSpot, we do automatic social posts to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, How do you handle that? And what do you, what are you looking for when you're writing a social post? Do those platforms, does your tone change depending on the platform?
0: My tone changes based on the real estate a little bit. What's actually funny is I find that I have more flexibility with something like a LinkedIn. LinkedIn has become like I know it was a thing that we used to all make fun of, like it was just where you posted your resume, but people have a lot of fun over there, especially as personalized one-to-one video is becoming a lot more common. People are really using that space to build more personality into their brand. And I think there is a lot more opportunity to really push your personality there. Whereas sometimes it, it, with Facebook, it, it, it's not necessarily a turn off. But with the way the organic algorithm works there, it can sometimes just feel like I'm just never going to get in front of anybody. That being said, I do actually use the same approach for all three that we use, which is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Twitter, often a little bit more trimmed up just because you got 240 characters. That's what you got. That's it. Or 280. I don't know. Um, I try to, again, keep it personal and keep it human. Um, I know I've seen a lot of folks use it in different ways where they try to make it seem as if, you know, the brand is speaking. So it must be in this sort of like, this is the third party omniscient brand speaking. This is the logo, the logo on the social media page. This is me talking to you. So let me have this detached voice that explains something. In most cases, I just lean into the fact that it's written by a person. I mean, once you click through, there's somebody's face on it or I'll take a quote and put it in quotes and put the name put like my name or somebody else's name there. But that that's usually the approach I take, which is I don't want to just do some sort of rehashed version of the title or the headline they're already reading. I want more context. Again, I now have another opportunity to get you to look at me. And I am an only child for the love of God. Just look at me. You know what I mean? Like I want people to see that piece of content come through on their Twitter feed, their Facebook feed, their LinkedIn feed and go, huh, she's right. I really should look at that. Anything I can do to make that moment happen, I'm going to go after it. So I can't remember specifically what I did for this one because I was it was late and I was trying to meet my deadline for my, my, uh, my boss, my, my news reaction boss man here. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, I'll say things like, I really if I'm talking about a specific problem, like let's say it's an article, like these are the two reasons why most blog articles fail. I might put something like, I can't tell you how many times I've had digital marketers come to me and have the same demoralized look. And it turns out they always have these same two problems. Always. And it took me so long to figure it out, and it was so simple. Check it out.
1: So I know I said that was my last question, but I'm going to ask you one more. Sure. So forgive me if you had to estimate, because I, I think something that we hit on this uh, on this podcast pretty often, and I think it's really worthwhile, is the fact that writing is often a laborious process that takes time, takes effort, takes drafts, etc. If you were to estimate from start to publish because this was completed in one day, how much time did this take you?
0: If we're talking about sitting down at the computer and tapping all those beautiful keys, say about an hour and a half to two hours. One of the things that I do, especially when I run on a tight deadline like this, is I will allow my brain to act like a little computer and start processing things in the background early. So I picked my story early. I read it early. I read it the first thing in the day. Because here's the funny part. Once you put something in your brain, your brain starts processing it, whether you want it to or not, you automatically start parsing through your thoughts. Thinking things through, starting to architect whatever it is that you want to say. Whether you want to or not, whether you're an experienced writer or not, this is the God's honest truth. This is what happens. What people often do, however, is they will put things off like this to the end. Like I'm gonna read the story, then I'm gonna put my thoughts together, then I'm gonna write my draft, and then I'm gonna do it all in one go. All you have to do is space it out. Read it in the morning, start at night. Very simple. So overall, it ended up taking like the full time, but I took. 30 minutes to read it in the morning. I read it like twice. I went, hmm. And then I put it to the side and I did my job and periodically throughout the day it would just kind of surface. So by the time I actually sat down to write, I was way more efficient because I wasn't trying to write and ideate and organize at the same time. I already in my head had started mentally structuring that, especially in a stress situation. Like I don't know if anybody ever went through this in school, but like, Once your brain knows you have a deadline that like for something like, I don't want to do this, or it's stressing me out, or I feel like I don't know enough about the topic, as soon as you start thinking about it and you put enough of the information you need in your head, your brain as a stress reaction is problem solving all the (laughs) time. So by the time you sit down to write that blog article, you don't want to write you will be surprised how much work you will have already accomplished if you just put the information into your brain earlier and then allow your stressed out little gray cells to start doing some some of the heavy lifting. It'll do it whether you sit down and make the time or not. It'll just happen.
1: Fantastic advice, Liz. Thank you so much for walking us through something from start to finish. That was amazing.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you for always making me look good and sound good and thank god you liked it i remember when i hit when i hit schedule on that i'm like okay john's my editor today if he reads that in the morning i just i i was afraid i was gonna get one of those hey liz they made a video for you i'm like <laughs> <laughs> although i do love those videos you pack a lot of compliments there but thank you so much i, I it, it was very and it was not interesting it was exciting to see where this conversation ended up
1: So Liz, you're still on the hot seat for just another second. So for Learning Corner, what do you have to teach us today?
0: Like you last week, who was unfairly maligned by terrible choices from other people who were hurting you, where it felt personal. I too today am coming with a grievance. It started in 2008 and Barack Obama was sworn in as president. And it was an historic moment. An an historic moment is a verbal cancer. (laughs) It is terrible because it is not an historic moment. It is a historic moment. Put your pinkies away. As I told John before we got started with today's recording when I told him what it is that I would be talking about, we are neither British nor refined, although some of you, if you are from the UK, you are, you are British and refined, and that's great, but it's still a historic moment. So articles like an, N is supposed to go through before words that have vowels at the start of them or vowel sounds. Historic does not begin with a vowel sound. It begins with a hard huh, H, historic. So it is a historic iguana. A historic fern plant on your porch, a historic walk. I don't know. Whatever is historical in your, wor- in your world has an A plopped in front of it as opposed to an N. So I want you to retract your pinkies that are firmly connected to your teacup because we are not an historic set of digital marketers. We are a historic end of rant. Thank
1: you. Nicely done. Nicely done. Thank you.
0: All right, John, what are you reading?
1: So I'm about halfway through 4321 by Paul Oster, which is absolutely incredible. It is like 900 page, super dense, Charles Dickens esque, uh, just masterpiece by Paul Oster. It came out in like I think 2018, maybe 2019. It was shortlisted shortlisted for the Booker Prize, um, and it's just it's it's absolutely stunning. So what what it does is it starts by telling the story of this you know family of of uh, Jewish immigrants coming to America, growing up in, in Manhattan and then Newark, New Jersey, um, and then the 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 protagonist is born, and then the story splits into four, and he lives four parallel lives so different things happen like his parents you know from that same starting point in each story like his parents you know they might move to a different house or they might have like different jobs or careers and and over the course of the story these small changes to this exact same starting point yield four incredibly different lives and people and it's this you know meditation on how the small choices add up over time and how little things and the people who happen to be in our life uh, push us one way or another and create who we are. So I am only maybe, I don't know, 350, 400 pages into it. It is incredible and um, certainly something that you have to fully invest in. And I had it for like a year before I actually sat down and really cracked it open. Um, But it's well worth it. So four, three, two, one, Paul Oster. Amazing.
0: You always come to the table with the best, here's what I'm reading. Because if I were to answer this question right now, what I most recently read would was a BuzzFeed article that was literally just a list of funny tweets about quarantine. So that just sounds way more compelling. Well, I read and that on too. that note, <laughs> well, um, should we get back to editing? I think so. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you, John. And to everybody else, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.